We are smack dab in the middle of the story of David versus Goliath. I wonder if you've ever heard of that story. <laughs> it's in 1 Samuel 17. If you want to be turning there, where we left off from last week was how high the stakes were. Not beef steaks, other steaks we're talking about. Geographically speaking, the Philistines, a longtime enemy of Israel, has a straight shot. We're talking 15 miles or so until they reach the powerhouse cities of Israel. Gibeah, which is where King Saul's hometown is. Bethlehem, King uh, to be David's hometown, and Mizpah, a worship center where the prophet Samuel is many times. So I want you to think about it as if the proverbial enemy bombers have their sights set on D.C., don't rejoice, L.A., New York City. On top of that, the enemy has a proverbial atomic bomb, the unbeatable foe, Goliath. Loaded down with armor, over nine feet tall. Needs an entire separate person in front of him just to hold his shield. Arrows plink off his armor. If you charge him, he'll probably pick you up and pull you apart. The stakes are high and it looks pretty grim. Goliath has beckoned Israel to do what some did back in ancient warfare. Makes sense. That is... Forget the months of warring. Spare the bloodshed. Let's settle this by one representative from each army. Good idea. Why not? How convenient Israel now has a king. They rejected God as their king, but the physical king that they wanted was one who would literally go out before them and fight their battles. Oh, but what? wait. What is Saul doing? He's just as scared as the, all the Israelites. And so for 40 days and nights, Israel lives in this terror. Their big cities are threatened. Their king is stagnant and unmoving. And they're constantly demoralized. I liken it to, to something like this. That imagine that there was a button that when pressed, it would constantly deliver the feelings of cowardice and terror and self-pity and fright and shame and embarrassment and Goliath would be laughing his head off in front of all of them, pressing this button over and over with his taunts. The key word is defy. I defy Israel. And it literally means to heap shame. And where we left off is David, still a young shepherd at this point. All we know is that he was anointed king privately in front of his family. And he had been apparently been in the service of Saul as a musician and an armor bearer. But now he had been shepherding during this war. And he's just shown up by the command of his father to feed his three oldest brothers and then get news about the war. We're not going to be finishing this morning. I thought I was, but I got pulled over for speeding, I guess. (laughs) And I invite you to stand with me in honor of the Lord's word one last time. If you're able to stand, and let's read this passage together, beginning in verse 25. 
Previously, an Israelite man had declared, Do you not see this man who keeps coming out? He comes to defy Israel. The king will make the man who kills him very rich and will give him his daughter. The king will also make the family of that man's father exempt from paying taxes in Israel. David spoke to the men who were standing with him. What will be done for the man who kills that Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Just who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? The troops told him about the offer, concluding, That is what will be done for the man who kills him. David's older brother, Eliab, listened as he spoke to the men, and he became angry with him. Why did you come down here, he asked. Who did you leave those few sheep with in the wilderness? I know your arrogance and your evil heart. You came down to see the battle. What have I done now? protested David. It was just a question. Then he turned from those beside him to others in front of him and asked him about the offer. The people gave him the same answer as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul. So he had David brought to him. David said to Saul, don't let anyone discourage, be discouraged by him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. But Saul replied, you can't go fight this Philistine. You're just a youth. And he's been a warrior since he was young. David answered Saul, your servant has been tending his father's sheep. Whenever a lion or a bear came and carried off a lamb from the flock, I went after it, struck it down, and rescued the lamb from its mouth. If it reared up against me, I would grab it by its fur, strike it down, and kill it. Your servant has killed lions and bears. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, for he has defied the the armies of the living God. Then David said, The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, and may the Lord be with you. Let's pray. Father, sometimes the trouble with entering into familiar stories is we believe we've heard it all before. We've seen it. We've understood it. We've analyzed it. It's it's repetition gives us deaf ears. Holy Spirit, we want into what you're saying to us through this passage. You wrote it for generations to read it and understand it and apply it to their lives. Do whatever it is you wish to do in our lives with our study time today. Help us to be more like Jesus. Help us to follow after you. Stir us into doing what we were made for. None of us become Christians to sit on the pew until we die. But we all become Christians to love, serve, follow, and seek after you and your will for your kingdom. Say what it is you desire to say. Have your way in our hearts. I pray for those with Hard hearts that you would soften them in these moments. We ask and pray all this in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Common question. What are we fighting for? Not fighting in the sense of fighting each other, but we, the kingdom of God, fighting for. Quakers, friends, historically pacifistic, never hesitated to use wartime imagery. We talked about a lamb's war we are engaged in. What are we fighting for? What's the goal? What's the purpose? 
Why are the soldiers of Christ trying to take ground? Have you ever been there when it comes to church? I know many churches who who seem to be like spiritual social clubs. Many churches who might throw out the Bible. Everyone's accepted to practice their sin freely. We're just here to pat you on the back and tell you that God loves you. Pull up a chair while you drown in your sin. We won't even call it sin. We'll just tell you you're dandy and pat your back. Other churches take the opposite route. Glad you're here for the weekly beating. (laughs) I hope you feel like garbage for all you've done by the time you leave. You're welcome. (laughs) These are hopefully not what we're fighting for. I hope not. David shows up to a battle line and Israel's in the middle of a war. And what are they fighting for? I've built this picture for you this way just a few minutes ago. The stakes are high. Israel is threatened. It's a couple of minutes until midnight, so to speak. David shows up and he sees the stakes high for slightly different reasons, though. It's kind of tricky, too, David, because if you're not careful, David might appear to be interested in it for selfish reasons. The story again opens this way. Previously, an Israelite man had declared, do you see this man who keeps coming out? He comes to defy Israel. The king will make the man who kills him very rich and will give him his daughter. The king will also make the family of that man's daughter exempt from paying taxes in Israel. We don't know when or how long Saul had become king prior to this moment, apparently very many years We don't know when the taxes were put in place, but this was indeed one of the things Samuel warned about in 1 Samuel 8, when the Israelites were wanting a king to fight their wars for him. Here, Saul's not fighting their wars for them, but he's taxing. (laughs) But hey, if, if somebody else fights the war he was signed up for, he'll alleviate taxes for that family. What a swell guy. Yes, the riches and the daughter in marriage is nice too. This verse is more informative of what David will inherit by, or what he will come into by his actions. I don't believe it's very informative of what David is truly after. Because listen to David's question here. Again, David spoke to the men who were standing with him. What will be done for the man who kills that Philistine? Now, if we just stopped here. We might say, oh, gee, David wants to know what kind of reward he's going to get. But that's not what David's after at all. He's a man after God's own heart. And here is his concern. His concern is who is going to kill this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel. Disgrace in the Hebrew is related to that key word defy, the heaping shame Throughout the chapter, who's going to remove this shame thrower from Israel? And then Defy actually shows up again in David's words. He says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? That is David's concern. Who is this turd over here? What does he think he's doing? Why has he been flat out insulting, heaping shame on God and his people? What right does he have? 
And I really believe that there might just be, this is Kevin's speculation, so take it or leave it, but there might just be this sort of wonder or disappointment in David's words, as in, why hasn't anyone done anything? What will be done for the man who does this? I mean, is is the fact that this uncircumcised Philistine, mocking, hating, and blaspheming God, and just not incensing enough to move someone to shut him up? Do we need to up the ante? I believe that's David's heart. He's indignant. He showed up at Israel's finest, Israel's army, and they've just been putting up with this giant spouting off the filth and doing nothing about it. I wonder if this what is needs to be heard in your life as it is in mine. See, I confess that sometimes I'm part of the rest of the army of Israel, or I'm Saul more than I'm David. I'm apt to shirk or cower more than I am to take David's approach. I mean, there are some situations, some avenues of life where I might be bold, maybe some social issues where I feel like God's made a definite stance, a definite statement about, the, about in the Bible. Sure, I'll talk about it. I'll defend it. What I'm talking about, though, is sins. There are just some sins, habits, things in my life where I'm Saul. I'm wetting my pants in the king's tent. About this word king, I truly am by the blood of Jesus, a lowercase king. I'm an heir. I've got the authority and the power by his Holy Spirit and God's power to do what I desire with those sins. But I cower before it. And here's David coming in here indignant, angry, yelling. Why are you putting up with that garbage? Why is nobody around here doing anything about this? Come on, what's the deal? Is that what you need to hear today? Is there a nine-foot shame thrower in your life and you're just cowering? The army, those who hear David, don't have David's heart. They think David really wants to know what's in it for the person who fights him. Instead of picking up on David's righteous indignation, the troops, uh, verse 27 The troops, I guess I skipped it, pulled him about the offer, concluding that is what will be done for the man who kills him. Did you catch that? Two things are being talked about. King Saul's got a reward out. Sounds like a suicide mission, but come on, no taxes. Wealth, his hot daughter, who's in? And David comes, um... Hello, this dump truck over here spouting off garbage about the living God that we serve. Who's going to decommission him? Anybody? And the troops are like, well, whoever does it gets the goodies. (laughs) Two things, reward, God's honor. And it seems everyone is more interested in the reward. Have you ever been interested in lesser important things when it comes to God's kingdom? I'll be the first to confess I have a lot of love, interest, and investment in good things, Christian things, but sometimes not the most important things. This happens to a lot of Christians. When is the last time that you witnessed or you helped a a neighbor out whose circumstances are, are dire? I can't tell you that, but hey, when I sit down and chat about prophecy, end of the world stuff, let's spend a good year speculating on when God's coming back. I'll pick on me. Hey, Kevin, buy yet another Bible, even though you have the Bible in a billion different formats. But this next Bible is going to be the winner. Who have you or I witnessed to lately? 
whose eternal destiny did we, by God's direction and grace, help change? Or are we just too busy doing, sure, good things that might have a time and place, but just not most important all the time? Reward's fine. You know, Saul shouldn't be king in the first place, but as king, he should be the one fighting. But hey, reward's fine. But everyone's talking about the reward because they're too scared to do what's most important. To take care of the dump truck that's pouring garbage on God Almighty. See, God has said, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Goliath's defeat has been written about ages before Israel lined up to hear the filth and the contempt coming from his mouth. But fear arises not out of Goliath's threat. You need to hear that. Because some of us are focused on the threat. Fear arises out of a failure to take God at his word. David takes God at his word and Goliath's minutes by that point, are numbered. What gets in the way? What throws us off track? What makes us talk about abstract rewards when none of us are willing to do what it takes? Well, we see what David's older brother thinks in verse 28. David's older brother, Eliab, listened as he spoke to the men, and he became angry with him. Why did you come down here, he asked. Why did you leave those few sheep with in the wilderness? Who did you leave those few sheep with in the wilderness? I know your arrogance and your evil heart. You came down here to see the battle. Any of you older brothers? Any of you younger brothers? I'm the youngest of my family. I never had any younger brothers. You ever get jealous of your siblings or your friends? Perhaps they're doing your job, but better if you're honest. It hurts, but if you're honest, they do do it better. You know, I remember when I felt called into ministry to be a pastor my senior year of high school. Started writing and preaching sermons. My older brothers, I have two of them, my oldest one, where he was at in South Carolina, called my folks and told them and told me that he too was feeling called into ministry. Started preaching at the church he was attending. He's a great preacher. I listened to him. Sermons, good stuff. There was a part of me who said, interesting. Thought it was rather convenient. I guess since uh, pastoring and preaching is such a unique calling or vocation, I didn't feel too entitled to feel jealous. And I really didn't. But I just thought it was interesting that after I had declared my vocation to the family, and he's seven years older than me, he decided to do it too. A few years later, my brother closer to me in age called me up, called my mentor up. He wanted to preach a sermon at Valley View Nazarene. And as I was running my sermons by my mentor every time I got to preach at Valley View Nazarene, so my brother sent me and my mentor his sermon that he wanted to preach. To be honest, he was having some girl trouble where he was living at, Fairchild Air Force Base. And interestingly enough, he was hoping this gal who lived at the base would be present at the church to hear the sermon. The sermon was unique, definitely my brother. And let's just say he and I ended up having a fight about it. He also had a little heartburn towards my mentor, and he never got to preach the sermon. I know some of you, farming, ranching, it's family business sometimes. And I've heard 
And sometimes I've read horror stories of families bickering over the farming. Whether it be who gets more farmland or warring over who's farming better, sadly it happens. Eliab, the oldest of the family, the one passed over by Samuel because God in turn anointed David. Eliab, the one who is on the battle line and along with every other Israelite, has been stagnant in fear for 40 days. So chapter 17 told us earlier, that one is approached by little brother anointed King David. The king, the one who fights the battles of Israel for the family. Who does David think he is? Nice of him to show up after 40 days. And what's he going to do? Talk us to victory? Why did you come down here, he asked. Who did you leave those few sheep with in the wilderness? Chapter 17, verse 20 had told us that he left the flock with someone to keep it. But what Eliab is trying to do is two things. Remind David of his station. You're taking care of the white furry pets while we big boys are out here fighting. Never mind, they're not really fighting. And Eliab's asking a question that specifically questions David's capacity to be responsible. I bet you can't even shepherd the white furry pets, let alone be a shepherd of Israel. That was the attack in his question. But here is the real anger for Eliab, and it has absolutely nothing to do with David, if he was honest with himself. But people like Eliab never are. They're too blinded by their selfishness. Eliab's never taken up Saul on the offer. Eliab is like the rest of Israel, stagnant on the battle line. And as opposed to confronting the cowardice in himself or come to grips with his inability, he lashes out at someone he's probably been angry at ever since God through Samuel passed him over to anoint David. David is the last guy that Eliab wants to be outdone by. And so even before David gets a harebrained idea, such as actually being willing to rise to the challenge of Goliath, Eliab's going to attack David's character because that's always a confidence builder. That's always an encouragement. Oh, look, my little runt brother is here. He smells like sheep. What would you bring up, little runt lollipops for the warriors? And if you're not laying into his character, he's laying into his motives for his very appearance. I know your arrogance and your evil heart. You know, God seems to think a little bit differently about David's heart. But Eliab accuses David, you came down to see the battle, right? You're certainly not here to fight. So what are you doing, little runt? Did you bring the popcorn? You're just going to sit back and, and watch the demise of Israel like it's lions and slaves in the Colosseums of Rome? How many of us, we do not welcome people to God's kingdom as we should? Whether it be at church, or people we catch wind about someone being ministered to, somebody at church says, hey, I've been meeting with so-and-so lately. They actually asked me to have me pray for them. They've been asking questions about God. And all we might be able to say to ourselves is, be careful, watch out for that person. Becoming a Christian is the last thing that will happen to them. I'm not saying that we're never fair judges of character, but our heart's in the wrong place. All of you are welcome to say amen to this. I'm weird. I guess it's why I'm a pastor, but there's part of me that really does like business meetings. Uh, I, I'm actually kind of like the elder meetings, not all the time, but I do. I like 
committee meetings, and I've heard Christians almost reject the idea of business meetings in church, almost from a theological or Christian fashion. I don't know. I feel like church should just be a place where we come to worship God and not worry about the money and business things. And if this is where you're at, first of all, how do you think a facility and ministry, hear that, ministry, stays operable, functional, and actually doing things beyond our four walls if we never talk about it? And second of all, sure, business meetings have the propensity to be complacent or to be effective. We pray it's always the latter, but simply because something has the propensity to be complacent doesn't mean we should neglect it altogether. Here's the connection. Israel could be practically be non-existent in a matter of days. The very king of Israel isn't budging to protect their homeland. And where is Eliab's heart at? Not on the threat, not on what's worth fighting for, not on what's before him, but rather he takes the time to really join the ranks of Goliath and starts to lay in on his own brother. Heap shame. And for what? For reasons of his own failures and really nothing to do with David as far as that is concerned. Not the first time a brother in the Bible has been resented by other brothers. Joseph, Jacob, Jesus. No wonder David asks, what have I done now? Protested David. It was just a question. See, David has a focus in mind. There are bigger fish to fry, Eliab. It's just a question. I don't know if you see this, Eliab, but there's a gigantic threat literally taunting the the God that you and I serve over there. But if you feel like now's a great time to lay into me, great. (laughs) And this is what we do at times in God's kingdom. See, there is a, a common goal and objective to love and serve God, to love and serve people, to bring people to God's kingdom, to advance the kingdom of God, but sometimes we like to come to church apparently with a greater desire with apparently what we consider more important things to do. Like argue, (laughs) bicker, put forth our two cents about what? Well, if it's like Eliab, it doesn't really matter if it's a bitterness against a brother or sister. What it is sometimes is we have to ask ourselves, is this just really about me? Because for Eliab, it was really about him. He wasn't chosen as king. He wasn't standing up to Goliath. Sometimes we're just as complacent. Sometimes we get loud, vocal, passionate, maybe even about a good thing, but just not the most important thing. And if we're not careful, that good thing can be a selfish thing. This is an age-old example, but maybe it's still soon, too soon for some people, but I'll just keep trucking because a lot of you are already offended. Music. I don't know how many times I've heard, let's sing hymns, let's sing more contemporary songs. Yes, they can be important, but things can be important without being argued about. And if they become argued about, Why? See, will the next person not be saved if they don't hear a hymn? If they don't hear a contemporary song? I don't know. I could be wrong, but I don't know if God's ever up there saying, man, if Woodland Friends just had one more contemporary song that day, Harry, who walked in today, would have gotten saved. Oh, you've done screwed up, Woodland. Well, while it seems by and large that Israel is dreaming about the great reward to be have, and Eliab is stewing over his brother showing up on the battle line, here's what we read is on David's mind in verse 30. 
Then he, that is David, turned from those beside him to others in front of him and asked about the offer. The people gave him the same answer as before. Now, the author here is just giving, giving us the happenings. He doesn't give us the why of David's asking, as in David asked about the offer again because he was really interested in money and the daughter and less taxes. But rather, from the context of the entire chapter, and especially the first time David began asking about this, I personally believe, and I'm not going to say you have to agree with me, but I personally believe that David has a righteous indignation propelling him. As in he's asking about the offer because he's wondering why no one has taken up the cause to fight for the honor of God. To fight the one who dares to show contempt for Israel and Israel's God. Does that make sense? David's not a thrill or a fortune seeker. I believe he's seeking God's honor here. Verse 31 What David said was overheard and reported to Saul. So he had David brought to him. David said to Saul, don't let anyone be discouraged by him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. Him, this Philistine. David doesn't even merit the giant with a name. Just an enemy of God that must be dealt with. And here David is offering himself for the cause. Let me just say this. I'm going to give you a line from the playbook of pastors. This one's for free. Pill back the shroud of mystery. Let you in on the world of how pastors think. It's well known among pastors to have congregants from time to time to come to us and say, You know, pastor, I think a ministry like this would do well in our church. I actually had a person call me before I came here. I was selected as pastor. Hadn't gotten here yet. That person's long gone, but they called me. I think this ministry would do well in our church. And that's when we pastors get our our handy-dandy book of responses, and our response for that one is, you're right. I think you should head that up. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Because we consumer-based Christians think that feedback and a comment card is all that's necessary on our part. But who has the most indignation here in the battle? David. So who's going to do something about it? David. Not because David is even so good, so prepared. We're about to see that he's not in worldly standards, but because David has felt the indignation to protect God's honor, if he's the only one filling it, well, by golly, he'll act. Let me tell you this. If you feel something needs to be done, a ministry, some neighbor needs to be cared for. Let me just say this to take a bit more of a detour. My favorite being sarcastic here, but my favorite situation is when a Christian complains, somebody ought to visit that person, provide food for that person, care for that person. And sometimes I feel like Christians complain about doing good to another neighbor because they themselves feel guilty that they haven't done it enough as far as they're concerned themselves, right? If you feel like the church ought to do more to help out Sally neighbor down the road, when is the last time you have visited Sally neighbor? Do you feel entitled to try and make others feel guilty about not visiting Sally Neighbor? Because you visited her twice last week. Nobody else in the church that you know of did. God will take care of those who are sinning by omission, not doing what they should do. But if you have a growing passion for a situation, whether it be visiting Sally Neighbor, whether it be a ministry that you're certain your church would benefit from, don't seek leaders to dump that on. Seek leaders and people who can in turn champion you, enable you, and help you. 
But I'm too busy. I don't have all the skills. I'm just a, a vision master. I envision things and other people should do them. Or how about David here? But Saul replied, you can't go fight this Philistine. You're just a youth. He's been a warrior since he was young. See, for David, it was other people who had dismissive voices. The excuses as to why David can't do it. Now, this is amazes me, too, because I think this is likely the first person to say to King Saul, I'll take on Goliath in 40 plus days. And we see a rare occurrence where it seems like Saul actually cares for another person. And he says to David, he doesn't send the first person to say he can do it to his death. You're just a youth. He's been a warrior. Now, it's interesting because a chapter earlier when David was first called to Saul's court, the people telling Saul about David said about him, he is a valiant man, a warrior, eloquent, handsome, and the Lord is with him. It's a bit of a resume. <laughs> warrior among them. Why was David at home during the war then? Some, in fact, bring up the, the chronology of chapter 16 and 17. I tend to take these two chapters at face value. We're told David was at home because his dad asked him to be shepherding, and his dad had already had three older sons in the army. But as for David's notoriety as a warrior, here's how David explains it to Saul a chapter later. He says, Your servant has been tending his father's sheep. Whenever a lion or a bear came and carried off a lamb from the flock, I went after it, struck it down, rescued the lamb from its mouth. If it reared up against me, I would grab it by its fur, strike it down and kill it. Your servant has killed lions and bears, right? I don't know how often or how willing shepherds were willing to charge wild animals like this. I know you have to. It's your livelihood. But at the same time, this could have been the resume of warrior part. Lions and bears are virtually extinct in Israel today. But during this era of history, skeletal remains have been discovered. Lions have been observed in Israel until about the 1200s. Bears as recent as the first half of the 1900s. They were there. And they were after sheep, but they were unsuccessful as far as David is concerned. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, like one of those lions or bears, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Then David said, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go and may the Lord be with you. Some irony as Saul blesses this, his successor king to go and fight his war for him. And then later on, he dresses him as well in the next few verses. But we'll talk about that next week. Do you hear the focus of David's indignation? The, the Philistine who has defied, there's that key word again, heaped shame on the armies of the living God. But then do you hear the source of David's power? The motivation that will cause him to fight the Philistine, it's not because, oh, such a great reward. But the Lord has rescued me from the paw of the lion and the bear, and he will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. The, Lord need, the Lord's honor needs defending. And even when David steps up, he steps up into availability. He doesn't step up because he is the one to do it, but he is the one available for the Lord to use. And before he was available here to start heading out to take down Goliath, David was available when the sheep got entrusted to David needed to be defended. See, God has been the one 
rescuing. God has been the one fighting. David's just been available, and David's just been the one seeing things God's way. More than a threat to the very existence of Israel, which is kind of a big threat, Goliath has been a curse to God. And more than just seeking rewards, David's been seeking to honor God. Here's what I've been wondering. Are there things of lesser importance that have drowned out what's most important in your life? A threat has been taunting Israel and throwing shame on God for 40 days, and the army of the kingdom has taken it for 40 days, and the only thing on their minds is the reward. That nobody was daring to take a step to receive such rewards. And when it comes to the kingdom of God, you and I do not join this kingdom to line up and be stagnant until God returns. No, we joined a king on the offense. When Peter confessed Jesus as the Lord in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says that his confession was the cornerstone in which he intends to build his church, a church wherein the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Did you know that gates is a defensive structure? Gates of hell. See, the gates of any location is a defensive structure. God's growing kingdom is one on the attack where the gates of hell don't even have a chance. And I fear that how many of us are here talking about things of lesser importance? How many of us are in a winning army where the commander has laid down some objectives and there are Davids, thankfully, whose hearts are in the right place and their energies are focused right, but... But sometimes I'm here, maybe even joining Goliath's team, yelling at the Davids around us. If we were honest, it could be that we were just jealous. We have misplaced affections. We've been on the battlefield for days without lifting a finger. How many of us know what we ought to do? And we only get angry at the Davids because they're doing what we ought to be doing. God has called us to serve him, and then God will empower us to serve him. So all that remains is for us to serve him. That's the R part. Let's pray. Father, there are so many things we can take from the story of David and Goliath. The odds are by the time I'm done with preaching through it, I'll be little bit sad or disappointed because there are 15 other applications. It's a story like a diamond with many sides and all of it is beautiful. Father, for whatever instance, this was the, for whatever reason, this was the message you laid on my heart. And Father, if anybody else is convicted like I am, I pray that we would take the opportunity to repent not to let the little attorneys in our heart rise up telling you, you don't know the entire situation. Father, if any of us are like Eliab with a very important task in front of us, but we would rather attack those who are trying to do that task, help us. Father, I just pray that none of us would feel like we got saved. Now that's done. Let's move on. 
But, Father, we got saved and we've been added to your kingdom and you are fighting a war. You're advancing it and the gates of hell will not overcome it. So what is there to lose if we step out in faith and do what you would call us to do? For many of us, that daunting task is our neighbor next door that you want us to witness to. That daunting task is taking a look at our budget because you've been called us, you've called us to give more to a ministry. That daunting task may be moving, getting another job, whatever it is, I pray that you would help all of us to be faithful. And we do it not out of fear, not because you've convicted us and you made us hurt, but you do it because you called us. And what a thrill and joy it is to be called by our king to do something. And we do it because you love us and we love you. Help us to rest in that love. Father, as we think about potluck that we're about to enjoy, we pray that you would have blessed the hands that have prepared the food, that you would bless our conversation with one another. We thank you for the opportunity we have to gather and fellowship and eat. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Kevin Davis here, pastor at Woodland Fringe Church. First of all, thank you if you tune in from week to week. Uh, We're glad to have a church outside of the four walls here. And I pray that everything you hear would help you grow in your faith. Hey, I want to let you know about a ministry that Woodland Fringe Church does not officially support. It's just something that I support from time to time personally. And uh, this is the only uh, one way I can think about getting the word out. Take a look at vermontchurchplanting.com. Yep, talking about the state, vermontchurchplanting.com. And if you feel so inclined to give, if you're not giving anywhere, or if you want to give above what you're giving at your local church, I want to direct you there. Uh, You can find links to give there, uh, see what they're about. They have their own podcast. Uh, So, yeah, that's one thing that um, I would encourage you to support. Thanks for listening in. We'll hear or we'll see you next time.